Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's word, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous command, righteous judgment will be revealed. <clears throat> he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but only obey unrighteousness, they will be, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the very word of God. Before we get into this text this morning, I want to uh, just say congratulations to uh, our administrative assistant, Ashley Thomas, six years that she has now been serving us here at Crosstown. 
this month, six years. So thank you, Ashley. Super grateful. And she's going to be out of town next week. I was going to do it next week, but then got to do it while you're here. So thank you for how you've blessed us. Um, so shortly after our first child was born, um, it was time to take him in to get his first immunizations. Now, my wife, as a new mother, knew that she could not handle seeing him receive, this, receive his first vaccination, so I volunteered. No problem. I mean, after all, these kids, they don't remember this anyway. It's no big deal. So I walked in there, and uh, the, the nurse said, okay, you need, to, you need to hold his arms, pin him down. Is that how they still do it? No, they, they do it different now? Okay. So that's how they made me, I'm holding him, and, and uh, she's preparing the, the vaccine, and just about the time that this needle gets plunged into his leg, I think, is that right? Okay, I'm checking with our uh, pediatric doctor back here. Got to be accurate in my sermons. Uh, he looks up at me and gives me the biggest grin that I have seen up to this point. I mean, just like, hey, dad, what's up, man? And then that smile is instantly transformed with this look of horror. And I could just read it in his face. What kind of a dad are you? What kind? I thought I could trust you. I, I thought that you only want good for me. It was a strange feeling, I'll have to admit, and I don't know that I ever volunteered again to help pin my children down for their vaccines. The gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed to us, we saw last week as we, be, as we jumped into Romans 1, in part to reveal to us the kind of God that we serve. We serve a good and gracious God. We serve a God who is full of mercy. We serve a God who is called in the Bible, love itself. God is love. But as we keep reading our Bibles, from time to time, we find ourselves pinned down, staring up into the face of God and asking questions like, what kind of God are you? The text before us this morning is one of those kinds of passages. Now, let's be clear. God is perfect in his parenthood. He is good in every way. He is gracious. He is kind. But we sometimes question this. We are sometimes confused by what we say. On the one hand, we know to be those characteristics of God that draw us to him. And on the other hand, an experience of God that feels like he's pinning us down and only pain seems to follow. The subject before us this morning, as is quite clear from verse 18, is the wrath of God. And it is a difficult subject to discuss. Too many Christians these days would simply rather 
ignore passages like the one before us. And I must confess to you, it's not getting easier in the day in which we live to open the Bible to a text like Romans chapter 1. But here we are. We are committed to the Bible in this church as our authority, and so we're going to study it together this morning. God's wrath against sin is difficult for us to comprehend, but we get help as we read through this passage as Paul begins to reveal to us first the essence of what sin is, second, the way God responds to sin, and then third, the hope that remains for us as sinners. The essence of sin, God's response to sin, and then the hope that remains for sinners. So first, we're looking now at verses 18 to 23 in chapter 1, and, and, and considering here for a few moments the essence of sin. The apostle argues that God's wrath against human sinfulness is justified because human beings are without excuse for the way that they have rebelled against him. God's wrath against human sinfulness is justified because we human beings are without excuse for the way that we have rebelled against God. So again, verse 18 brings up this difficult subject the Bible calls the wrath of God. Now, I realize that we are uncomfortable with this word. I realize wrath is a strong word. And it carries with it for many people a, a connotation of furious anger, rage, a red face, harsh words, strong and devastating actions. I realize that when the psalmist describes God's wrath like this, Psalm 18.8, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. I realize that when you hear words like that, some of us will feel repulsed. We don't want to think of God like this. So we shy away from speaking about God's wrath. And there's lots of reasons why that may be so. Perhaps it's because you grew up in a religious environment where pretty much all you heard was God's wrath against how horrible you were this week. Or the wrath of God communicated by that condemning stare from an otherwise known spiritual authority in your life. I realize that when we talk about the wrath of God, the fact is we have all kinds of different reactions and emotions that come not only from the words itself, but also from what we might perceive these words to be telling us. And yet, nevertheless, here it is in our Bibles. What should we say about it? Uh, and part of the problem that we have is that while the Bible can speak of God's wrath, and as we're going to see in this text, as righteous, 
Not in any way compromising the righteousness of God, but is in fact an expression of God's righteousness. Nevertheless, the Bible never speaks, let's make this clear, the Bible never speaks about human wrath in that way. James 1.20 says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if when you hear the phrase, the wrath of God, and all that comes into your mind is that parent or religious leader or some other person who has claimed to represent righteous wrath, no wonder a text like this is incredibly uncomfortable. We humans can never, listen, can never reflect the righteous wrath of God because our wrath, however justified it might seem to us or to somebody else, is always, always mixed with human sinfulness. I've heard many people say, well, I am righteously angry. The Bible would not endorse that view. God's wrath is bound up with his love and mercy. And when God's mercy and love are met with opposition, his love becomes wrath. Notice how the apostle makes the point. First, I want you to notice the parallel between verses 17 that we ended with last week and verse 18. In verse 17, we read that the righteousness of God, which we said means God's own rightness, his own vindication, the justification of God, God in the dock, coming out not guilty. God is in the right. He is not in the wrong. That's what we said verse 17 means. We said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the fact that God is right has been revealed or manifested or made plain. So in the story of Jesus, in the gospel, and in particular in his powerful resurrection from the dead, we find that God has been seen to be right. You can trust him. Now we read in the next verse that the wrath of God has also been revealed, manifested, or made plain. It's the same verb in verse 17 and in verse 18. And so what we ought to see, that just as the gospel has made plain that God is in the right and can be trusted, he is, uh, the gospel has also made plain that God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's being against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity is what we mean when we talk about God's wrath. And yet... What Paul is saying is it takes the gospel to make it plain. Do you see that? It's the gospel that not only reveals God is right and can be trusted, the same gospel also reveals that God is right to be wrathful, to be enraged against human sin. The same gospel that reveals God's righteousness and power to save also reveals God's righteousness to judge. And it's in the gospel as it's proclaimed that both are made plain. So a big problem that we have when we come to the evaluation of God's love and his wrath is that we usually do this on the basis of our circumstances. This happens all the time. 
we evaluate, does God really love me? Or is God really against me? By the circumstances we face in life, not by the gospel. It's a big mistake, a huge mistake. The world makes this mistake, but so do you and I. We think, for instance, God loves me when life is good, when, we are, when things are easy or prosperous, when we get good news. We say, God has blessed us. God must love us. Isn't God good? We do this on the basis of our circumstances, right? You don't do that, but you know people who do. That's okay. We'll work with that for right now. Okay. We do the same thing when it comes to God's wrath. When life becomes stressful, painful, unbearable, when there's conflict, when there's no resolution, when you lose your job, when you hear the bad news, God doesn't love me. He's against me. I feel God's wrath. These are unbiblical ways to evaluate God's love and God's wrath. And yet that's how we do it all the time. It's the kind of error that is so common that we remain deceived about the Bible, the Christian faith, the nature of God, and the saving power of the gospel. So what is said, uh, um, it is said of human beings, look in verse 18, that they have suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. This means that our unrighteousness, our ungodliness, our, our sinfulness is an assault upon the truth. What truth does he have in mind? It's the truth about God, who he is, what he is like, what he does, what he has done. Verses 19 and 20 argue God has made plain to us his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature from the very beginning. It has been made plain to us, the scripture says, in the things that have been made. So Paul's argument is that when we look at the created world, we can clearly perceive something true about the nature of God. Namely, he is eternally powerful. And he's not a part of the, cre of the creation itself. He's a divine being. He stands outside of this world that he has made. These things, Paul says, are plain just by looking at the created world. In other words, when we see the material universe, we are right to conclude that standing behind it all is an all-powerful being who is not himself part of that material universe, but is the uncaused cause of everything. If you don't believe there is a God like this, Paul's saying, the Bible says, it's because you have suppressed the truth. Now, let us here deny the thought that if you happen to have come in this morning and you would say you are an atheist, <laughs> that we are accusing you, or even the Bible is accusing you, of deliberately lying about what you really believe. You know, like, come on, be honest. Just let's be honest, you atheist. You really believe this, don't you? Don't do that. That's not 
how this works. On the other hand, don't, do the, don't say, well, if you're a theist, I'm guessing we got some in the room today, that it's because you're courageous enough to see what so many scientists today just are not willing to see. At least you have the courage to do it. It's clear in verses 21 to 23 that Paul is not saying that every human being enters into the world with God clearly revealed to them, but some simply suppress the truth, while the rest of us are just courageous enough to admit it. It's the other way around. All of us, all of us are born suppressing the truth, pushing it away from us. We suppress the truth, verse 21 says, every time that we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Did you see that? Every single time you see evidence of God's eternal power and of God's divine nature and you are not stunned with the greatness of God and you do not fall on your face in thanksgiving and praise and worship, it's because you're suppressing the truth. So guess what? I'm surrounded by friends who suppress the truth all the time. And so do I. So do I. It's not just the pantheist who deliberately worships the material universe. It's the Christian who lacks gratitude toward God. Who stares up into the night sky and sees, we were doing this this week, some of the, we were staring up into the sky and the, we, there's Jupiter. They're sat, you can see them right now. It's pretty amazing. I know it's just a light in the sky, but it's a planet. Every time you do that and you don't say, praise God, how far away is that thing? Wow. And you're not stunned with the magnificence of God, you're suppressing the truth. You're pushing it down, pushing it away a little bit. Verses 21 to 23 describe the way that we human beings end up idolatrous, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25 says it quite memorably, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The Bible word for this is idolatry and it is the essence of human sinfulness. Pastor Darrell in his prayer led us to confess that we are all idolatrous. Do you see it in your own heart? Do you see that you suppress the truth every time you are not wowed and wondered by the greatness of our God? This, the essence of human sinfulness, our idolatry, our tendency to turn and worship and exalt a creature over the creator is the reason for the wrath of God. Now let's look at that, verses 24 to 32. Paul describes God's response to human sin. If the essence of human sinfulness is idolatry, which comes about because we're pushing the truth about God a little bit further away from us, if that's the essence of human sinfulness, How does God respond to that? 
Now you'll notice in verses 24 to 32, three times, three times in these verses, verses 24, 26, and 28, we are told God gave them up. You should probably underline it in your Bibles. It's striking. God gave them up. The the impression that we get in these verses is that God arrests the sinner. He puts the sinner into custody. He does not ignore the sin, but he makes some deliberate response. And while these verses make plain that God's wrath against sin, they are not God's absolute judgment against sin. Notice they are just as much an act of mercy as they are an act of judgment. For in what follows, God is hoping that sinners will come to see and hate this path of walking away, of suppressing the truth about God. God puts them into custody in hopes that there will be a transformation. Consider then the three conditions into which God consigns sinners. First, in verse 24, we find that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So prison number one is impurity. (laughs) And this impurity, what does he have in mind? It's further described when he calls it the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So this first prison where God has consigned sinners is an experience that is results in the body being dishonored. Interesting. Now, what this means will become more explicit in the next few verses, but I simply want to pause here to note that according to the Bible, the result of sin is dishonor to your body. The proper view of the Bible about our bodies is that they are good and honorable. Any religion that does not teach that is not Christianity. The proper view of the body in the of, of the body in the Bible is they're good and honorable. God, having made human beings in his own image, has crowned us, Psalm 8, 5 says, with glory and honor. Your body is sacred. That's the Christian view. It's inconsistent with the Christian faith to minimize the body, abuse it, or disregard it. It's the reason, for example, why throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, the standard Christian practice in dealing with the dead body is to bury it rather than to cremate it. No judgment from me. I'm just saying that's... There's like a theological reason why Christians throughout history have preferred burial over burning a body. It's because the body is sacred. It matters. Christianity is (laughs) pro-body. You can tweet that if you want. Christianity is pro-body and the impulse for Christians, don't do it now, the impulse for Christians ought to be to care for and respect the body, not to mutilate it or dishonor it. 
but when we exchange the truth about God for a lie, as verse 25 says, everything gets flipped upside down. The body gets abused. That's prison number one. This twistedness is clearly in view, as Paul mentions the second condition into which God has consigned sinners. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he then goes on to describe in no uncertain terms homosexual behavior. And here we find the clearest biblical perspective on homoeroticism. If you want to know where to turn to to see what the Bible has to say about it, you can't get clearer than this one. Now, it seems that Paul brings it up here because it is a clear example of the penalty that matches the crime. To worship mortal creatures instead of the immortal God is to turn the entire cosmos upside down. It is unnatural. It goes against the way God made things to be. Homosexuality is to the body what idolatry is to the soul. It is, to put it bluntly, simply not the way God made things to go together. It's unnatural. Now, I am very much aware that this kind of talk will really get you into trouble. And I said it anyway. (laughs) But I want to hasten to add two things. So if somebody one day decides they need to download this message from the internet and bring an accusation against this church, it's there on the record, but you should listen to the rest of what I'm about to say. First, here at Crosstown Church, we are committed to the Bible as the final authority on what we believe and how we strive to behave. Yes? I mean, if you're a member here, Winslers just joined. First thing they just said that they are joining, like we all said this, is that we will submit to the Bible as the final arbiter on all things, what we believe and how we're going to live our lives. So we have no choice. We cannot waver on this point. We're not going to do it because we can't do it. We are bound by the word of God. Homosexual behavior is, according to the Bible, sinful. It is something that ought to be avoided and, if committed, confessed as sin and repented of. But let me also say that if you are someone who experiences same-sex attraction. Listen to me. Young person, adult. If this describes you or if you've committed homosexual acts, you are not a greater sinner than those who have not. 
There's another reason I think that Paul brought, has brought up this issue, and we're going to come to it momentarily. But for now, I simply want to say that here at Crosstown, we do not see that those who have sinned in this way are greater sinners than anybody else in this church, including the one who's preaching to you now. In fact, if we move on to verse 28, we see a third condition into which God has consigned sinners. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, like what? <laughs> you got a list, verses 29 to 31. There's a wide range of human sins, both general and specific. Can anyone here today truly claim that you are innocent of all the things in verses 29 to 31? I hope that's true. Nobody's going to say, yeah, hey, hang on. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm innocent. Just look at them. The point of all three of these prisons into which God has consigned sinners is to demonstrate that God is simply not apathetic about human sin. You might be, he's not. He does not ignore it. He, what does he do? The gospel of Jesus tells us, thankfully, mercifully, that God does indeed rescue and deliver from sin. But the point being made now is that you can't be rescued if you don't see the misery that you are in by your sin. So God's wrath against sin, in which he does not just stand by and watch us go our own way, but... I like how one commentator puts it, gives us a push downstream, plunging us further and further into sin is as plainly revealed to us as God's eternal power and divine nature are in the world that he has made. But here again is the problem. The human response to the revelation of God in creation is said to be a suppression of the truth. And likewise, in verse 32, we are told that although we sinful humans know what sin deserves, namely death, we not only keep on committing sin, but we find ways to congratulate others and encourage even more sinfulness. I find myself doing it. I see some example in the news or on the sport field of human sinfulness, and we laugh, and we congratulate, and we emulate, and we do the same things. What a mess. Is there any way out? We turn our page, we turn the page to chapter two, and we find some hope in the opening verses of the second chapter. But in order to see this hope clearly, there are still some blinders that need to be removed from our eyes. This is what I'm trying to do this morning, Christian. I'm trying to help all of us get these blinders removed from our eyes so that we can see ever more clearly the hope of the gospel and not be ashamed of it. For example, we can see Paul's rhetorical move that he's making by the shift in pronouns. It's striking. Did you notice it when Morgan was reading it to us when she got to chapter two? In, in the first chapter, Paul is saying, they, they, they. And then you turn to, second, to chapter two and all of a sudden it's you, you, you. Paul is using a literary technique known as a diatribe. 
It's when one begins to engage in an imaginary dialogue with an opponent, emphatically objecting to the opponent's line of argument. You said, but as for you, as for you. What he's doing is turning the tables on certain individuals who may have thought of themselves outside the force of what was being argued in chapter one. So Paul says in verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So if you found within you any degree of self-righteousness as you listened to the indictment against sinners in chapter one, well, then you just played right into the hand of Paul's rhetorical goal. Congratulations, you fell for the trap. I said earlier that Paul may have had another reason for bringing up the the issue of homosexuality. That other reason that I have in mind was I think he's trying to reveal the self-righteousness that is thick within the sinful heart. I mean thick. You say to me, I know I'm a sinner. The Bible would say, you have no idea. You have no idea. If you hear the indictment against certain sins like homosexuality and you find yourself eager to say, yep, amen, those people deserve God's wrath, boy, are they going to get it. Now, I mean, no religious person has ever done that. You people are stone cold today. You're smiling beneath the mask. If that's how you respond, or if you've heard people respond, then you just fell right into Paul's trap. See, you know better because you've already read chapter two, so you're like, I better be careful here. But that's what was happening. It happens all the time. You hear somebody, you hear, you hear the preacher talking, and you're thinking, yeah, my spouse right now, boy, this is so good. Paul would say, you have no excuse. That's what he does. That's what he does. We all see so much more clearly the sins of others, right? Come on now. You can see so well the sin of your spouse, your child, child, your parent. You can see other sins so clearly. So when we hear about the kinds of things other people do, we find ourselves from time to time shaking our heads and thinking, if not outright saying, can you believe that? (laughs) And Paul is saying, when you say words like that, those kinds of comments are a self-indictment. Paul is saying, you who are so quick to judge others, don't you see that you too will be judged? We all find it easy to criticize others. Can you critique yourself by the same standard? Don't say yes, because you can't. And you don't. But we should. Like many of you, I've been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. But as you listen to it, watch out for the self-righteousness that so easily floods the soul. Sin lurks not only in that church, ah, it lurks in this one too. 
And before you say, I'm out of here, it lurks in the next one that you're thinking about going to. Guaranteed. And you know why? Because sin lurks not only in some fallen preacher's heart, it lurks in your heart as well. So listen, but be careful about judging. Listen and be humbled. Now, Romans 2.1 might remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 7.1. Are you thinking of that? Judge not <laughs> that you be not judged. Ah, that's one of the most famous verses that almost everybody knows, even if you're not a Christian. The Bible says, do not judge. Many people love Matthew 7.1, but it needs to be said that it will not do to use these words to promote some misguided view of tolerance or non-discrimination. It is as clear as can be that neither Jesus nor Paul thought that if we just don't criticize anyone for their sins, then we will somehow get off the hook for ours too. That's not, that's not going to work. The point is we tend, that what we tend to do is to come down hard on others while being far more lenient on ourselves. That's what Paul's rhetorical technique is when we turn to chapter 2. What we should do, Jesus himself says, if you just keep reading Matthew 7, is suspect that the impulse to judge others for the speck in their eye is always hindered by the log that is lodged in your own. That's the point of Matthew 7. Don't judge. And it's the same point Paul is making right here. So Paul says the same thing. Verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So when you are hearing the news of what some other person does or believes or thinks about this issue or that issue, and you start finding yourself ready to, ready to critique, ready to judge, watch out. Watch out. And if you say, well, see, that's the point. I don't do the same things, now do I? I'm not a sinner like that. I vote Republican. I, oops, I didn't mean to say that. Then you are really blind to the nature of your sin. You are really blind. The one who engages in homosexual activity is guilty of violating which of the Ten Commandments? Somebody's going to say all of them. Okay. But especially the Seventh Commandment. Our catechism makes this plain. But guess what? Read the Seventh Commandment. Read the catechism of the Seventh Commandment. And guess what? There are plenty of other ways that heterosexuals break the same commandment. Every one of you. Every one of you. They do not have to sin in precisely the same way to be guilty of exactly the same sin. Right? So what should we do then when we notice the sins of others? Simply ignoring the sin under the guise that we must not judge is totally missing the point. Verse 4 gives us a better path forward. We should be overwhelmed by the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience. And we should notice that God shows us such kindness in order to lead us to repentance. That is, we should aim for change. God is patient with us in our sin because God wants us to be transformed. He wants to deliver us out of it all. So notice verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. 
That's in your Bible. God will, in the end, prove to be just. He will give us what we deserve. No one on the last day will say God is unfair. Every mouth will be stopped. God will be just. You will find this taught repeatedly throughout the Bible in the Old Testament as well as the New. And verses 7 to 10 set up a contrast and state it twice. God's judgment, listen, will take into account our deeds. We will all get what we deserve. And God has shown enormous patience toward human sinfulness waiting for us to turn away from our sin and do what is right. But if we don't get there, God will spare not a one. He he is, as verse 11 says, an impartial judge, even if you and I are not. So the question that remains for all of us to answer is this. Will you escape the judgment of God? Will I? How so? Paul has already demonstrated that all of us are without excuse in the face of God's wrath. None of us deserves eternal life, but rather, verse 8 says, wrath and fury. (laughs) Verse 9 says, tribulation and distress. Is there another way to eternal life? Paul has already given us the answer. It is in the gospel of Jesus that God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. The righteous can indeed find life, but only by faith in Jesus. So, in his mercy, God pins us down, all of us, so that we feel his wrath against sinfulness in order that we might find life in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray now that everyone who hears this word proclaimed will feel by great mercy the weightiness of God. He pins us down so that we might see the hope a hope that is found only in our Lord Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood shed, that sinners might find life in him and only in him. 